0: Our scripture reading comes from Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28, and this is coming right after um, last week's reading, so we're continuing this story of Jesus unveiling who he is and what his purpose is. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples if anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so these passages, last week and this week, are really talking about what is identity, What is naming who we are? What is naming place and self? And naming all of those things seems simple in theory, but there is a kind of panic that comes with being asked to define who you really are. And then there is an additional panic that Peter must have felt when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Because up to this point, they didn't know. They, they know he's a rabbi. They believe he's a prophet. But none of them have yet named the truth of the man that they're following. And I think that this is common for all of us. We might have a sense. We can start to wrap our heads around who we think that God is and who we think that Christ is. But do we always really know and so as we read Matthew last week and this week, we should feel some of that tension, that place of not knowing. We know that he's a rabbi. But it's like watching a movie when we know something that the main characters don't know and we want them to figure it out because we know it's important and they're not there yet and they keep getting so close to getting to the point. It's every good romantic comedy and every good horror movie share that in common. (laughs) So we breathe a sigh of relief last week when Peter, in a flash of insight, is no longer content with viewing Jesus as one of the prophets, but realizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And we think, finally, Peter understands. And from here on out, for the rest of Matthew, all of the disciples will get it all the time. Peter gets the title of Messiah right, but he doesn't actually understand at all what it means. And so when Jesus talks not about a road onto glory, but one that leads to the cross, Peter rebukes him. And then Jesus rebukes Peter right back, which calls into question our own understanding of Jesus because we have to admit that Peter's definition of Messiah is the one that we would really love a lot of the time, too. We want a strong God who heals our illness, provides endless prosperity, guarantees our security, urges both our military and our sports teams on to victory, keeps us happy, and healthy, and wealthy, and wise. But that is not the Messiah that Jesus is. And we know as much as we want this to be a simple thing, this title of Messiah, that religion and words like Messiah have never been free of political intrigue and violence. People will do a lot of harm in the name of religion if they think that something is threatening their power and privilege. And you would think that these people, uh, religious leaders who were living under an oppressive Roman rule, would have wanted to join in a revolution that resisted a state that said that wealth and power were all that matters. But it is easy, and we should understand how these religious leaders get swept up in the places where they have privilege and power. They lose sight of who they are called to be, and we we know what that can feel like. They've convinced enough of the masses of ordinary people to act against their own best interest and to join in a cause that only favors the rich and powerful. And Jesus, as the Messiah, is a threat to all of this power that they've built up. His mere existence, when he was born, was such a threat to King Herod that he was willing to murder all children just because one might replace him someday. Sometimes those who are in the innermost circle of a revolutionary band don't fully understand the revolutionary concept of a word like Messiah. Jesus envisions a kingdom that prioritizes justice and righteousness, promotes loving your neighbor in a way that is defined by the way that God loves us, and the way that we should love ourselves. It's a kingdom that is not interested in wealth and position and authority. And so Peter, in this moment of realizing who Jesus is, is still not ready or able to stand in that space with Jesus. And so he scolds him. God forbid that you should die. That's not what we're here for. Pulling Peter aside, pulling Jesus aside, Peter chastises him as if he thinks maybe Jesus has lost faith. He's being defeatist. He's not seeing the greatness and the power that could come of this incredible movement that they have. We are uncomfortable when people talk about the hard things of faith. We want to move them into the joy and the easiness of it. But grief and mourning and pain and fear are a natural human experience. God created us to be human and declared it to be very good. And in that moment of pain and fear, Peter assumes the role of the adversary in light of Jesus' revelation of his fate. Raquel St. Clair Lettsum argues that Jesus dies as a consequence of his life and ministry. And Jesus is accusing Peter of being a stumbling block and focusing on the human things rather than the divine things. Because Jesus knows that this temptation, this, this role of adversary, is one that is tempting to anyone who's entering in to this hardest part of the work. So Jesus returns and addresses all of the disciples and says, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a new teaching in light of Jesus's imminent death. If Jesus's disciples choose to continue following him, they must be willing to deny themselves and not Jesus. They need to be able to envision the fate of the cross. Jesus teaches the one who wants to save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. But what will it profit him if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what will he give in return for his life? And these words should call us back to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. When the great tempter, the stumbling block, when Satan dares Jesus to save his life by turning stones into bread, to lose his life, cast himself from the highest point, knowing that he is already overwhelmed with this work and seeing if the angels will save him. When he is tempted to gain the world while forfeiting his life, worship Satan and you can have all of the power and wealth that you want. Before Jesus even stepped out in his public ministry, he has settled the question of his priority. Jesus has been tempted with all that the world would offer and has sided with the poor who don't have the power to turn stones into bread. He refuses to trivialize life and sides with those who are defenseless against the daily violence that they face. He turns down wealth that comes at the expense of others and instead speaks out against those that would crush the most oppressed in his community. Jesus is pointing to a God who meets us in vulnerability, suffering, and loss, a God who meets us in the moments that we really need God, when all that we have worked for, hoped for, and striven for fall apart, and we realize that we are incapable of saving ourselves by ourselves. Jesus' identity proves elusive precisely because God shows up where we least expect God to be which means that we don't get the God that we want or that we think should be, but we get the God that we need and that the world needs. It's important to hold on to that and resist temptation to fall into what is easy instead of the person God created us to be. Jesus has to rebuke Peter because the vision Peter has for him is a much more expected life one that won't invite in the heartbreak of wading into humanity without barriers. And when we talk about denying oneself and picking up the cross, it's not that really performative, public kind of humility and martyrdom. Oh, I really wanted that new truck, but I have taken up the cross of Christ, and I won't be buying it this week. And you know exactly the type of person and conversation I'm talking about, who will talk about the cross that they bear. We do not follow Jesus by demeaning ourselves. We are called upon to do the very best we can with the talents and abilities that we have been given. To deny oneself is to keep our priorities in line with what Jesus told us in the great commandments to love God and love our neighbor. And so if we deny ourself, we deny our selfhood when it pushes us out of relationship. We deny self when it refuses healthy community. We deny our individualism when it rejects the intimacy of a faith that brings others in. To deny ourselves and take up our cross invites us to what the cross can mean, not just death and suffering, but God choosing human relationship, a commitment to humanity, not what we are in relationship with others and what we can get out of it, but how we can be connected. We have defined our identities as those that are connected to Christ and to each other, because we know it's not about just ourselves. Taking up the cross is a denial of self in that very best way. It is denying the self that thinks it can survive on its own. It's denying the self that rejects the deep need for humanity to belong. Jesus's charge is not to demand that you deny your true self, but it's an invitation to imagine that your self needs each other. This is what it is to be human. And so we know ourselves, but we need to know ourselves in community. We can't be ourselves on our own. And so perhaps Jesus is saying that if we think we have it all figured out like Peter does that if our faith is tight and locked in and totally infallible, we might just be getting it totally wrong about who the Messiah is. Peter declares that his loyalty to Jesus will withstand the threat of death, that though the crowds forsake Jesus, he never would. I think we try to see Peter in these moments as weak rather than as just human. Maybe Peter saw himself as superhuman. He got caught up in who he saw himself as and not who he was in community. Jesus doesn't call us to deny our humanity, but to commit to following while accepting how vulnerable our humanity actually is. If we choose to be revolutionaries, we have to know that we are vulnerable. Jesus was willing to be God's Messiah A revolutionary knowing that violence could be done to his body as a consequence of pursuing justice and love and peace in a way that goes against the desires of an empire. Most revolutionaries know this risk when they step out and choose community over self. My friend Scott Warren was a part of a... No Mas Muertes, No More Deaths, an organization that puts water in the desert for people that are crossing. The point is just to do that, simply provide water and reduce the number of people who die of thirst in the Arizona deserts. He was arrested at gunpoint, his life threatened, for doing this work. One of the most powerful parts to me of this story is that his case was thrown out under religious freedom, because it is central to his faith that we provide water. But we don't have stories that all end like that. We have saints who urge soldiers to lay down their weapons and were killed while offering communion because of it. We have those who spoke out against the harm done to generations of farmers in India by mining and disappeared a week later. They knew the risks they were taking. They were very aware of what can happen to those who speak against power and against privilege. And we know that for some, that calling to pick up the cross and deny yourself can be one of violence and pain. And for them, that is what it was to be in community. That is what it was to lay aside who you are and follow God boldly. For the rest of us, that doesn't need to be true. But it needs to remind us of how deep the stakes of denying yourself and picking up the cross should feel. It is a denial of who the world calls us to be and a radical acceptance of who Christ calls us to be instead. In the places that are most uncomfortable and fill us with the most fear, God is with us and we are with each other. And so what does it look like to deny yourself and take up the cross? Can you imagine with me that God is at work in and through your life for the good of the world? Can you imagine that this congregation has something of value to offer our community? Can you imagine that when you befriend the lonely or encourage the frightened, that heaven rejoices? Can you imagine that when you are afraid, you are still able to stand up to those who spew hate because God is with you? Can you imagine that even small acts of love and generosity will challenge the world order and introduce a different reality? Can you imagine that God wants not just comfort for us, but freedom? Can you imagine a love that is more powerful than any hate? And can you imagine a God that brings back a Messiah so that we know that love can never be defeated? My friends, we come to the communion table today to celebrate what it is to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and to follow